But the way to the, control that was through the use of aggregation. So what he would do is take, basically, you couldn't rely on one taster, for example. He thought you had to grab several tasters together, isolate each and every one of them, allow them to go ahead and score and define wines. And then based on that aggregation, you could find truth. Um, mm -hmm. But what this also did um, was people who were considered outliers would then be considered not good tasters because they didn't fall within the means. Welcome to the Daily Coffee Pro by Mapper Forward, friends. I'm your host, Lee Safar, and this is the first in a five-part series where we are talking about tasting coffee, but not in the way that you might be thinking that we're talking about tasting coffee. I'll, it'll become apparent in, in a little bit. Uh, joining me for this series is Costa Calibrosos. Did I say it right? Yeah, you did. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, Bravo. Uh, uh, gracias. I don't know what language, all the languages that we're speaking in a second, I will start speaking in Arabic and you will start speaking in Italian so. and it'll, it'll all end up meshing into one. Anyway, we are talking about tasting coffee. Um, and this is going to be an interesting conversation because we're going to be talking about more of the nuance and the history and the kind of, um, the philosophy behind tasting coffee. So to get us started, Costa, why don't you tell us about you? Sure. Um, my name is Costa Calabrusis. I'm the U.S. sales manager for Algrano. Uh, we're a digital platform and a marketplace to connect producers and roasters. Um, yeah. And so, you know, part of my job is an intersection of, of taste. And mm -hmm. I have been privy to basically seeing the buying and selling of green coffee for about the last seven, eight years. Um, and I'm also a licensed Q grader. Um, I've been a U.S. Um, Brewers Cup finalist in the past as well. And, you know, I've had an overall obsession with taste in the intersection of power and taste probably since like right before I started selling green coffee. Um, and really, you know, like it, it became interesting to me when um, I ended up meeting some coffee producers in, in Guatemala. It was my first ever origin trip. Um, and it was, I mean, your prototypical amazing experience, this feeling of, of paradise. Um, it had been what I had been working so hard to like have the opportunity to see firsthand. Mm -hmm. Um, and out of conversations and experience that I had with several producers in, in Guatemala and ended up basically launching me into an inquiry of, uh, how did, how did we get to the point where we understand taste in coffee the way that it is? Where did the cupping form come from? You know, what are mm -hmm. like the attitudes and dispositions, um, you know, and why are they the way that they are? Um, I would probably consider myself at best an academic enthusiast mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just Googling shit and hoping that I can find <laughs> like just little bits of glimmer, you know, to the question that I have, which is like, how did we get to where we understand the way that taste functions today? Now, in this episode of the series, we're going to talk about the history of taste. Yeah. So, so tell us about the history of taste. 
I have my own theory and I'll call mm -hmm. it my own for now. Mm -hmm. um, and this comes from two papers in particular, one from Harvard scientific historian, Stephen Shapin, mm -hmm. um, and then a colleague of his, Christopher Phillips. Um, Shapin did a paper on the subjective objective binary in Californian wine. Mm -hmm. um, and as Explain I Explain what that it, means. Oh, please. sure. So yeah, no problem. So subjective objective binary in, in wine. So what Shapin was basically looking at is like, how did we go from like European ideas of like, this is what taste is. Taste is cultural, it's aristocratic and it's poetic. And like, this is how you know what good taste is, for example, in wine. Like, this mm -hmm. is how you describe wine. This is how you enjoy wine. These are the varietals that we enjoy. This is why we enjoy them. Um, you know, describing things like sunshines and rainbows. Mm -hmm. um, and then enter in, you know, halfway across the world into California and UC Davis. A gentleman by the name of Amory Menard, like, shows up. And basically, the state of California throws a whole bunch of money at UC Davis in order to go ahead and restore Californian wine after prohibition. Mm -hmm. uh, but in order to go ahead and really be able to restore, you know, any type of financial value to wine, um, Amarine started looking at ways to go ahead and challenge uh, European hegemonic power. Um, what so, does like, hegemonic uh, power mean? Oh, like total control. So. Okay. France, Spain, Italy, Germany, these are the predominant like countries that had uh, the majority of control over wine production and consumption and exportation. Okay. Yeah. And so in the US, basically, Amory Menard says that we don't understand taste. Taste doesn't come from culture. You know, it doesn't come from outside. It's a biological structure. And so what you have to do is understand the thing that you're tasting and the biology of what you're tasting. And once you understand that and you're able to quantify it and describe it, then you can actively, you know, build something that would appeal to the masses. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's essentially what he did, you know, during his lifetime. Um, there are little homages that I ended up seeing the way that um, specialty coffee ends up valuing um, uh, quality in general. Things like, um, you know, you can't taste you know, foreign or outside flavors, you know, what mm -hmm. is quality is what is pure and inherent within the coffee itself. So for example, you know, like Rioi, we consider it a defect because it's an outside flavor at that point. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way, uh, Menard would consider a petrol-like quality in like a German wine to be uh, default as well, because here is this foreign flavor that's coming through, you know, therefore it's not considered quality or even practices, you know, the ability to go ahead and score wine, but also practices such as like triangulation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are, in my opinion, basically the foundations of which um, especially coffee ended up building its archetype of what quality should be, which is a focus on, um, you know, finding pure flavors, it's, and it's also a focus on numbers. Um, and it's a focus, in my opinion, of how to control um, the subjective experience of people. How to control the subjective experience of people. Yeah. Tell me where the control comes in. Yeah. So this is the, 
a sister paper with Christopher Phillips. Mm -hmm. uh, so Menard ended up working with a, with a statistician because he thought that the human experience was inherently flawed. Um, it, they could work their way as best as possible in order to make objective um, statements, assumptions, or you know, um, quality or excuse me, objective quality descriptions on wine. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mapper Forward's first on-demand workshop, How to Become a Coffee Consultant, available now online for you to learn at your own pace with a certificate available upon completion. Click the link in the show notes to access today for just 50 euros. But the way to the control that was through the use of aggregation. So what he would do is take, basically, you couldn't rely on one taster, for example. He thought you had to grab several tasters together, isolate each and every one of them, allow them to go ahead and score and define wines. And then based on that aggregation, you could find truth. Mm -hmm. um, but what this also did um, was people who were considered outliers would then be considered not good tasters because they didn't fall within the means. What kind of scientist um, was he? It, was this, he, is he a, yeah. Like a oh, social a scientist question. or yeah. a, a, no, a bio? No, 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 no. I mean, he was, I'm like trying a, to remember now. I think a food was, technologist. Uh, what, what kind of scientist was he? You know, I don't know. Now that it's, it's crossing my mind. I just know that like from Shapin's, you know, description of it, like Menard ended up spearheading i believe the viticulture department of uc davis okay um i know his background was like in wine judging um which doesn't so really mean a lot right mm -hmm. yeah it doesn't really but, yeah yeah but this became you know from what i understand you know the foundation and the template for like what would be considered quality wine and there's like a really interesting uh footnote within the paper in which basically k-state is in conversation with France and France in the time of like the fifties and sixties was like outright rejecting this in its entirety. Like you can't, you can't like turn it into numbers, you know? And so you yeah. have like this cultural clash, you know, between like old world, you know, meets new world. And like, mm. how do we, how do we define quality and who gets to define quality? The thing I love about the time that we're living in is that a lot of the, uh, presuppositions that we make about like not just the things that we think but like by whole industries the foundations that industries are based on are getting questioned by people like you and I think it's an incredibly exciting time that there are people like you who are sitting here on a podcast and saying so I decided to dig into this and I think that there is a incorrect foundation that our industry is being built on the history of all of this is super convoluted, right? Like the, it's not just about these two papers. It's about cultural palette. It's about um, for associations like the SCA that are trying, you know, they're shoestring budgets or not getting paid at all and they're trying to establish themselves as an, uh, an, as an organization. Because they're not getting paid, people put cupping forms together and they're like, this will do for the moment. We really don't understand this industry as much as we should, but we want to separate ourselves out from the other kind of, of industry. We want us to be special compared to them. Let's put this cupping form together. And then as you get an influx of people into a new industry, it's like a religion. 
people just assume the further you get away from the moment it was created, the more adoption it gets. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> I love that you describe it as a, as a religion, because I mean, for personally speaking, um, you know, my, my background in school was studying like the history of Christianity and spe specifically patristics, like study of early church fathers. Mm -hmm. And that ended up coming about because like, I didn't understand like how the Bible was compiled and the university that I was attending a biblical college, um, with, you know, PhDs and scholars abroad, you know, I didn't feel confident in the answer that they were giving. Um, it felt like it was this, uh, this is so hard to say, but I'm, 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 I'm going to say it anyways. And I feel uh, a little clumsy saying it like a blind acceptance of this is the way that it is. This is true. Mm -hmm. Um, and to me, like our conceptions and our constructions, if we don't understand like the hidden political realities of how things are constructed, mm -hmm. um, then we lose sight of like who they're put together for in the first place. Right. Um, and so like, that's really what became of interest to me, you know, when I'm looking at things like uh, cupping coffees, describing coffees, scoring coffees, you know, like who, who put together like the cupping form example, for example, why do we think that certain flavors are, should be rewarded more than others? Mm -hmm. um, who gets what's to be the agenda in behind messages? that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Who does this benefit? And you know, who does it put at a disadvantage? Like, and all sometimes of those it's questions. not deliberate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's yes. Right. Like a, a, another mm -hmm. yeah, example yeah, anyway. in another industry is that uh, women's medicine, women's health, has not been as studied as men's health because men were the one that were running medical scientific research for centuries. Yeah. And so things like perimenopause and the way that women transition through menopause and, and, and birthing and all these kinds of things aren't as well understood as many of the things that are understood for men's health because women weren't in those decision-making positions. Was it deliberate? I don't know that men were actually actively out there saying, we're going to fuck up women's health. I don't think that that's what happened. Right. And yeah. It's just that the bias was naturally there because the people that were in those positions were focusing on self and focusing on their, on what they understood. And I think a lot of that exists in, in things like, taste in coffee yeah 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 david david graber who's probably my favorite thinker on the planet um he's an anthropologist and or he was an anthropologist and an anarchist uses this term interpretive labor um which mm -hmm. i adore it's basically it's a concept that like when you're in relations of hierarchy uh mm -hmm. where one is above another mm -hmm. regardless of what it is race gender class employment you know etc uh, where it gets wonky is where all the interpretive labor, you know, happens from, you know, one group of people on top of another. And so, for example, um, you know, women historically are put in a position, you know, where women have to do the interpretive labor of like, what is this guy thinking? Why is he thinking this mm. way? You know, what is he going to do next? Um, you know, and there, it's almost never reciprocated, you know, in the opposite way. 
We know. Yep, I know. I am preaching to the (laughs) choir and I feel deeply uncomfortable saying it. (laughs) And let me tell you, specifically as a woman in the coffee industry filled with a whole bunch of men. Anyway, we're not going to go down that that rabbit hole. You can can go, you Uh, know, as far as I'm concerned. I appreciate you opening that up for me, but I assure you, sir, that I am a woman who is well capable of taking (laughs) and asserting that opportunity should I need it. I appreciate it. Good for you. (laughs) Yeah. So, and the reason that I bring it up is because, you know, if we're thinking about the cupping form, for example, or just taste in general, all the interpretive labor more or less has to be done by, you know, producers or those in the global South. Like they have to be thinking you know, what, what is the buyer thinking? You know, how are they feeling? Mm -hmm. How are they making these assessments? And it's almost always a sense of like, I have to adjust to like this person's expectation and read their mind and what they think, feel, act, and almost never the other way around. Right. Um, That leads us into what the next episode is going to be. And this is a question that I have asked scientists on this podcast. I've asked many people on this podcast about the objectivity of Mm -hmm. tasting coffee. Because if one person, like one end of the supply chain are trying to understand what the other end of the supply chain need, the assumption there is, is that they can give you an objective answer, right? Like, we should be mm-hmm. able to assume that the people who are providing us with this information know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. In the next episode, we're going to understand how reasonable a supposition that is. So join us for that, people. Peace, love, and peanut butter. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in, friends. There are two ways you can support this podcast. Firstly, become a paid member of our YouTube channel. Secondly, you can join our Patreon for as little as $3 a month. Both have options for exclusive ad-free content and early release content. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. The Daily Coffee Pro is produced by Mapper Forward and the music you're listening to is called Run 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 off of my album Laundry After Midnight. To get older episodes of this podcast, as well as more information on Mapper Forward, head to mapperforward.coffee. You can find links and more information in the show notes below.